my fingertips, my fingertips, particularly my right hand now, are so super sensitive to cold. What happens is when I get cold, they initially hurt really bad for probably about 20 minutes. And then once I can get them warmed up, I'm fine. But it's the initial exposure is just brutal. That was the voice of author Christopher Koch. And this is episode 268 of the Motorcycle Men podcast. In this segment of chapters, we have author and motorcycle traveler Christopher Koch, and he joins us today to tell us about today's chapter from Welcome to Metropolis, Riding Solo into the Heart of America, an account of his ride down the Great River Road. The Motorcycle Men podcast is brought to you by Scorpion Helmets. They offer high-quality, innovative motorcycle helmets and technical apparel at an incredible value. To learn more, go visit scorpionusa.com. And Shinko Tires. Shinko has a tire to suit your needs and riding style without breaking your bank account. So go to Shinko Tire USA and tell them that the Motorcycle Men sent you. And, of course, Wild Ass Seats. You can improve your comfort and ability to stay in the saddle longer with a cushion from Wild Ass Seats. So if you're tired of those painful pressure points and fatigue, go to wild-ass.com and get your cushion today. And, of course, Tobacco Motorwear. For the best in casual riding gear for men and women, there is only one place you should be going, and that's Tobacco Motorwear. Visit them at tobaccomotorwear.com, and our listeners will get 10% off your order when you use the coupon code MOTOMEN. Your safety is worth it. Chris, welcome back to the podcast. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing very well, Ted. Thank you so much for having me back on again. I'm flattered. I'm so glad that you can make it back and then we're going to talk about your book. So for those who are not certain or who don't know who you are, why don't you tell us who you are and what you've done and your motorcycle self? Sure. Well, my name is Christopher Koch and I'm the author of Welcome to Metropolis. And uh, it is the story of my solo trip from St. Paul to New Orleans on the Great River Road. I've been riding, I'm, I'm gonna be 50 this year. And uh, I've been riding a motorcycle since I was 15 years old. So I realize now that that's 35 years in the saddle, which, which uh, it passes so quickly. I'm, I'm really getting to that stage of my life when I think about the passage of time, you know, and to think that it's been 35 years that I've been on a motorcycle. Now, uh, compared to uh, some of your other guests and a lot of your listeners, I'm sure I'm a, a, a more of a casual rider. I've had interruptions of a few years here and there, you know, I was starting my family and whatnot. Um, I've probably owned half a dozen motorcycles uh, over the course of my life. My first one, Christmas, Christmas uh, of my 15th year. My parents, I mean, honestly, Ted, didn't have two nickels to rub together. And, and uh, I don't know what I was expecting for Christmas as a 15-year-old. Uh, but I came downstairs on that Christmas morning and next to, you can't say under the tree, next to the tree was a used Honda XL 185S dirt bike. And uh, I, I didn't come from a motorcycle family. You know, my, my, my stepdad didn't ride. I hadn't asked for one. And, uh, you know, you could have knocked me over with a feather. I, I sat there through breakfast staring at that thing in my living room, both excited and terrified of it. He was unable to teach me how to use the clutch. You know, it, 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 you know, just trial, you know, you know learn, learn by trial and error. 
And uh, that was my first motorcycle experience. And I went on to ride through high school and junior college. It was always less expensive than operating a car. You know, I tell people I learned how to ride a bike before I could before I could drive a car before I got my driver's. You know, I, I got my motorcycle license concurrently with my driver's license. And um, my dad had a 77 BMW R100 RS that he had bought uh, in 78 and gave to me when I graduated uh, college. And so that was the bike for a chunk of my adult life was that beautiful antique BMW. And, um, and I, it's still in the family. Um, I've actually handed it down to my little brother now. So it's still in the family. I had had it sitting in a barn for probably five or six years. You know, I'd had a major service done on it. I'd put some stable in it and locked it away. Um, dad came and got on a trailer, took it home and, uh, it fired right up. They've been riding it around. So, and, and that, that was, uh, you know, that was nice to see that that bike's now going to have, because my, my younger brother is young enough or, or, you know, younger enough from me that he could be my son. So it's almost like third generation. It's my dad, my, my younger brother's a year older than my daughter. Uh, so yeah, this bike has now been in the family, what, 77 to 2020. It's, what is that? Uh, 43 years. Yeah. And then after the BMW, I got myself, uh, 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 Honda shadow with the, what I called my faux fat boy, you know, it's, uh, it's plastic, uh, plastic Chrome and it's got, a, it's got a little V twin, but you know, the exhaust note isn't quite right. Uh, it was different seating position than I was ever used to riding in my life. I was used to a more upright position. And uh, that was a 500. And it was fine for getting around town. You know, this, I'll date myself here, you know, going to the video store and, and whatnot. Then I went to Sturgis for the first time in 2012. And I didn't want to ride that that Honda, you know, 500cc Honda. I ride it out to Sturgis. And, and uh, so uh, then I upgraded and I got the motorcycle I have currently. I've got a, a Kawasaki Concourse 1400 a Sport Tourer. And um, that's, uh, you, know, I, I, you know, I think I mentioned to you the last time we spoke, it's paid off. And so that goes along. It, it not only has it been, not only has it paid off, but I've put enough miles on that bike now that I feel so comfortable with its operation, you know, and it's, it's, um, you, you, they wear in like a good pair of boots or a good pair of jeans and you get reluctant to switch from them. I yeah, think. Well, let me ask you this. How many miles did the bike have on it when you got it? You know, you're going to ask me questions. I don't have good answers to. I think it had... I think it might have had like nine thousand on it when and I what's got. It, what's it got now? I would say it's around ten. What is it at now? I know. I honestly don't know. But let's see. I've had it since 2012. You know, if I had to guess, Ted, you know, maybe maybe eighteen thousand. I, I would say I probably put on about a thousand miles a year, which makes me a very casual ride. You know, I'll take off for an hour on a Saturday and go, but I don't commute back and forth to work. I don't. I'm, I don't ride distance. You know, I, I don't belong to a club. It's just something that when I get that itch on a beautiful summer day, I want to be able to go out to the garage and take a ride. Um, and that's where I've been for most of my years as a motorcyclist. There you go. So now your book, Welcome to Metropolis, Riding Solo into the Heart of America. Now that's, yeah. ba that's based on a motorcycle trip that you took. Now tell us how that journey came about. Okay, so that's funny because we were just talking about my motorcycle past and how I'm a fairly casual rider. Um, one of the things I talk about in the book, um, because I am a casual rider, like I, I don't have the right gear. You know, I, I, when, when I took off on this ride down the Great River Road, the helmet that I owned was 20 years old and rarely worn. Um, I had I didn't have a proper jacket. I didn't have gloves. I didn't have proper boots. I didn't own chaps. 
uh, hand warmers. What are you talking about? I mean, nothing, no good gear. I, I'm, I'm a, you know, I don't, I don't ride without shoes. I'm not an, an idiot. Um, but, but I'm, I'm the guy who hop on with sneakers and cargo shorts and a t-shirt, no helmet, pair of sunglasses and ride into town and conduct a little bit of trading and come home. Um, so I got divorced in 2012. And so I'm a single guy. Um, you know, I'm doing the things that single guys do. And I got it in my head that I wanted to take an adventure and I wanted it to be something that was challenging. Um, but you know, I, I don't want to climb Mount Everest. I, I you know, I, I, I want to do something reasonably challenging. And so I decided to do a coast to coast or, or you know, a cross country, uh, motorcycle trip. And I wanted to do it by myself. I'm not terrifically mechanical. Um, and, and I thought this is going to be just the appropriate level of challenge. You know, maybe something will happen along the way that's exciting. Maybe, you know, maybe not, but I, I'm going to be out there on the road, on my own, on the motorcycle with my own thoughts, uh, and, and cross our nation. And I had originally planned on going, um, across the, the Southern United States from like, uh, you know, the Southern, Southern part of California over to the Florida Keys. And as I started, oh God, I would have loved it. Um, as I started looking into it, there wasn't necessarily a really obvious route. I had been warned about uh, some weather that I might expect along the way. I, I'm a self-employed tradesman. I'm, I'm, I'm kind of in a, I'm kind of in a uh, seasonal business. So it looked like I was going to try and make a trip in the spring. And, and so I was, I, you know, I faced some weather issues there. Then I thought about US 50, the loneliest road. And I actually just stumbled across, I'd never heard of it before, the Great River Road from St. Paul to New Orleans. Um, but I stumbled across it through a Google search of, of best cross-country motorcycle rides. And it appealed to me because it was almost literally right outside my front door. You know, I could leave my house, go go from the northern part of the United States to the southern part of the United States, following this 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 river that had so much to do with our, our, our American history, finish in New Orleans, hand the bike over to a shipper and fly home. I mean, it, it, it made itself into an obvious trip. It wasn't something that I had a particular yearning to do but but the ride was supposed to be pretty good it fit the bill for crossing the country and it was something that seemed doable to me and um you know so i took off not really knowing about it and i come home having fallen in love with it all right now describe the route for us and your preparation for that did you start at the headwaters of the mississippi or did you start simply at the closest point my original plan was to start at the headwater, headwaters, and headwaters are north of me. You know, if I had to guess, it had three or four hours north of me, right? So I would have had to ride in the opposite direction from home, get to the headwaters, and then ride south again, passing my home. Um, and I decided, based on this is this is the ludicrous nature of my trip. Okay, so when I I had been planning this trip in the spring, in the spring, in the spring. One afternoon in the fall, I got off work early. And so I came home and I said, you know, if I want to do this trip in the spring, I, I've got to start planning it now. You know, you, you don't want to run off half cocked. And so I started looking at these routes. I found the Great River Road on this Google search. And then I, I went to see what sort of weather I could expect. And I pulled up, of all things, the, the, the Farmer's Almanac. Because I'm not... I'm not looking for the forecast for tomorrow or next week. I'm looking for generalized weather trends in the United States, right? So I pull up the old farmer's almanac and they sell them to you for two or three dollars a region, these forecasts. And 
looking at the Great River Road or, or, or you know, even the southern United States, the, the spring weather was, was fairly comparable to the fall weather generally. And I happen to have some time off in November because of uh, a Veterans Day and, and just the way my, my calendar tends to work. Business gets a little slow. And so I'm, I'm sitting there in the office looking over this this farmer's almanac and possible routes. And I just get this wild hair. And I said to my sister, who works as my office manager, I call her my assistant. I said, uh, what, what if I just went next week? And she said, you could. I didn't, I didn't look at an actual goddamn weather forecast, Ted. I, I had the farmer's almanac in front of me and I said, why don't I go next week? And uh, the, the idea got a life of its own and, and we ran with it. I left town that weekend and uh, came back on Monday. I think I left on a Wednesday because there was presidential election Tuesday. I left on Wednesday morning. So I had like five days to plan for this thing. I swear to you, I did not check a, weather's forecast till the, uh, a weather forecast till the morning I was leaving. Um, and I left in, in early November, headed down the river road. And, and I, I think I've lost the original question you asked me. Oh, what was my preparation? Yeah. Nothing. Nothing. This is as close to a stupid-ass, wild-haired, jamboree misadventure. Uh, I mean, we're talking Smokey the Bandit, you know, loading up the truck with Coors and, and heading out. I mean, there, were, there was no planning. Um, so I went to my local motorcycle shop. I, I bought a new helmet. I, I ordered some stuff from Revzilla. Some of it didn't come. Some of it did. Among the horseshit things I ordered over that four-day weekend, I ordered this industrial-sized can of bear spray because I planned on camping out some along the way. And I, I don't know. I thought bears were going to get me. Um, nothing. I had no. I had never ridden an hour. I had never ridden more than one hour away from my home when I took off on this trip. You know, and, and I'd been to Sturgis. That was riding with other people, and I didn't ride out there. I trailered out there. So this was the biggest gamble, half-ass misadventure heading down the Great River Road with four days. That was my planning, Ted. It was uh, it was lunacy. I I wouldn't recommend it. Now, did you at least look at maps about the route? Not at all. Oh my God! I mean, how hard can it be to misplace the Mississippi River? Well, yeah. So the, the Great River Road is is um, it's a designator given to scenic byways down the Great River Road, but it was never rolled out new as a continuous piece of tarmac. What happened is the federal government set aside some funds for it, and the states designate uh, based on cultural value, scenic value, whatever. Uh, different parts of their their byway system to, to be part of this road. So you can't say that you start out on a particular highway and follow that highway, or even that you start out on a particular named road and follow that named road, because the path winds and shifts. It moves from one side of the river to the other um, as you as you go down the road. And um, I just thought naively that the the river is big, and how are you going to miss it? Um, and if I if I loosely followed the river and looked for the Great River Road signs, how badly could I screw it up? Um, and and you had asked if I if I started at the headwaters and I got going about the weather. So here's the deal: I planned on going to the headwaters, but you know, in literally in the in the probably 24 hours before I left, it became apparent that that the weather was encroaching, that that a winter storm was coming. And I didn't have time to dally in Minnesota for an extra day. So I got, I got the hell out of Dodge. Because, you know, well, Minnesota. In November. Right. Um, and this year we had a blizzard in October. I should have. Oh, really? This. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, we had we had eight, eight, ten inches of snow in the middle of October this year. So, you know, and I thought about that when it came. I said, well, you know, six years ago I was riding down the river road, uh, you know, at this time of year. 
And so I barely beat this storm out of town. So it, it wasn't a matter of, of, of neglecting to start at the headwaters. It was kind of a, oh shit, there's weather coming. So I just had to get. And so I figured starting in St. Paul was good enough. And I same in New Orleans. Well, yeah. speaking of that and the weather as part of your challenge. So what other challenges did you, challenges did you face along the way? Besides the weather? Besides the weather. Well, in general. And what was your favorite part of the whole trip? And so let's start with your challenges. Yeah, weather weather was a challenge the entire way. Um, you know, I, I joke about it now. Um, and at the time, I kind of threw myself into it with, with, with um, a fool's optimism. And, you know, this is going to be great. But the reality is, you know, from a safety standpoint, I did something really stupid. Uh, I departed my house without appropriate gear, without appropriate planning for a nine-day motorcycle trip, and I paid the price. Um, because I was traveling south, every day I thought the weather was going to be better the next day. But there was right. this precedented, like, 100-year storm that was bearing down on me. I, I was colder in Mississippi than I was in Minnesota. It just never let up. It only ever got and by the time the trip was over, and, and, and I talk about this in the book, I did permanent damage to my fingertips by the time the trip was over. I mean, I just, and, and it was this, this like I said, kind of a foolish, heady optimism that it was gonna get better. The only thing I really had was these those hot hands, chemical hand warmers. And I, I did everything but tape them to myself. I tie wrapped them to my fingers at, at one point. And uh, you know, I, just, I just kept hoping that it would get better and it never did. So the weather was a challenge. And then the Kawasaki has a has an electronic locking mechanism. It's a key fob. You know, it's not an actual key. The it's like an RFID thing. The bike smells the the key fob. And I had had some trouble with this system failing before, as have other Kawasaki Concours owners. You know, the owners forums talk about it and whatnot. Motorcyclists getting stranded, and and this thing will lock you out of the bike. It thinks you're a thief. You know, and. Um, I'd had a little trouble with that previously. I I thought that I'd put the trouble to bed and I took off down the river road with that problem not fully resolved. And by the time I got by the time I got two thirds of the way into my trip, I was actively fighting uh, the Kawasaki KeyPass system and and having to trick the bike into starting for me every morning. Um, so I faced that and then, uh, you know, just, just dealing with people. I, I get out of my element and around places I'm not familiar with and I forget I'm a tourist. And I, I was at one point in the book, I, I'm I'm uh, accosted by essentially a crackhead trying to steal my wallet. You know, so it's, uh, you know, stuff happens in the book. It's pretty, you know, it's... Uh, uh, our, our listeners will hear it in this chapter, but you did have a problem with going to the bathroom at some point. Oh, yeah. Well, you, you kind of let the cat out of the bag. But yeah, in the, in the chapter you're going to play, I, I, I straight up pissed myself. You know? so, well, welcome to the glamorous world of cross-country motorcycle travel. And, and camping in, in the freezing cold. <laughs> yeah. But no, it was, uh, it's, uh, it's fun. And that's one of the reasons I selected the chapter, because it's, uh, you know, I, I, I take off with this heady optimism and I, and I start to learn humility a couple of days in. What was your favorite part of the trip? My favorite part of the trip um, you know, honestly, Ted, I think my favorite part of the trip was was completing it. Um, there, there, there was there was one particular stretch, and in fact, it's in this chapter. There was one particular stretch of road outside of Keokuk, Iowa. There was this beautiful S curve, and it, and it was probably up to that point the best section of road that I'd been on. It was this freshly tarred, changing in elevation S curve. Uh, and it was a, it was a sunny morning. It was about as warm as I would see on the trip. And it was such a pleasure to ride through that I backed up and did it again. And and while we're talking about that, there was a segment of the Great River Road in Kentucky that was 
beautiful. It was it was a, a, a stretch of road that I did not want to stop riding. I, I I set a timer for myself because I had I had to get on and do something else. Um, I set I you know I set a mental timer for myself. Okay, you got five more minutes to follow this road, then you're going to turn back. And and so those segments when you really get in that flow state as a rider, and it's you and the road and maybe the music that you're listening to, and all those cares. You know, everything, your mortgage, whether or not you got aphids in your lawn, all, all that shit drops away and, and, and you're, you're left alone in the universe for a little bit. That was probably the, the best part of the writing. Um, but um, but honestly, now with a few years perspective, just having completed it, having taken off and done something adventurous that not everybody's going to do. And, and to somebody who rides long distance all the time, my ride is maybe not maybe not that spectacular. But for me, a casual rider who never did anything like it. It, it was an adventure and, and something that I was really proud to have taken on and, and finished successfully. Tell us about that playlist. I know this is not, wasn't one of the things I was going to set you up for, but tell us about that playlist. How much, how much actual music did you set up for yourself for this trip? I probably had, I had the, the, the Kawasaki Concourse has a little cubby in the gas tank. Uh, you know, on the top of the gas tank, a little plastic cubby that fits an iPhone real nice. And so I had made myself a playlist, um, probably two or 300 songs on that playlist. And, and, and after nine days, they start to repeat. <laughs> oh, really? Okay. Even, even a couple hundred songs, they start getting repetitive. Uh, the Doobie Brothers, Black Water, that was my unofficial theme song. After after like the second or third day, I started every day with the Doobie Brothers, Black Water. You know, because it talks about the Mississippi. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, there was um, Copperhead Road by Steve Earle was on there. Um, I really, that one was perfect for that ride. You know, I like uh, I like classic rock. I like classic country, I like Waylon Jennings, you know, that sort of stuff. And uh, my, my daughter calls it my old sad bastard music. But... Uh, when I on the motorcycle, it's just me, man. So I got to listen to my own tunes for nine days. That was that was. Uh, that so was did you go through all three hundred of those songs throughout the whole thing? Oh yeah, I didn't put, I did not put this in the book. But down in, uh, oh where the hell was I? Mississippi. Um, anyway, uh, down in Mississippi one morning, I'd had it with my playlist, and now we're firmly in mid-November. I put on Christmas Christmas music. I was freezing my ass off. I was down in Mississippi. I need to have my spirits up. So I put on Christmas music for about two hours and rode to Christmas carols down in Mississippi. But uh, no, I enjoyed my list. Hell, it's my own music. You don't get tired of your own songs. And and those songs, like I, I tell you what, I, I really do enjoy classic rock uh, and classic country. And those songs have survived 50 years for a reason. Music was good. Uh, and you, who, Zeppelin, Pink Floyd, uh, all those singer-songwriters, you know, the the Eagles, America, all that stuff was on there. So, did you set out to write a book on your trip down the Great River Road? Yes and no. Uh, I'm I'm a hobbyist writer, and I certainly had it in the back of my head that this would be a good subject for a book when I when I was leaving. Um, I didn't know if I would be able to complete a book about it. I didn't know if anything would happen that would be book worthy. Um, but, but certainly when I left, you know, I, I had my notebook with me and my little, you know, uh, playing card size notebook. And, uh, and I took a lot of pictures and, and I, I kind of scrapbooked or, you know, took mementos along the way to make sure that I would have, I would have adequate notes, but I didn't know, frankly, whether or not it would be, you know, uh, if enough would happen that would make it worthy of a book. And then when I got back and started writing it, uh, I still wasn't sure that enough had happened. Um, to, to you know, a, a nine-day motorcycle trip, you know, you, you maybe almost get mugged and you have a little motorcycle trouble and you got really cold, 
that doesn't that doesn't you know that's not war and peace but what happened is i started after the fact researching the places that i had been and the things that i had seen and i became really taken with the american stories not only these towns but the people you know one of the stories that 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 i was really touched by in the book was um in st louis i went to the top of the st louis arch and how do you write about the st louis arch i mean this is a national icon it's been written about so many times but i i, I researched the 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 elevator system you you climb in this tramway and it takes you to the top of this this monument and i talk about the guy who designed that this is a guy with no college degree um the 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 minds of the day had exhausted themselves trying to figure out how to make this thing work and they called in this World War II vet with no college degree his dad was an elevator salesman and he figured it out in, in the course of about 2 weeks and just made it happen um and so and that's a great story Dick Bowser's the fellow's name and um it was the stories of the people and the places that I saw that I that I feel like really made the book. And now what made you decide to make it an audiobook? That's a good question. I tell you, um I I again, I'm in the trades. I spend a lot of time in my truck driving around and then on job sites I work with my hands, you know, so much so my ears are free and I listen to a lot of audiobooks. I listen to a lot of radio content. Uh I'm a Howard Stern fan. I listen to Stern on my 9 hours a week. Um so I I actually got my report from Audible, you know, because we just hit the end of 2020. I got my report from audible.com said I listened to 47 books last year. So I knew that I wanted my book to be available in audio format because that's how I enjoy most books. Um I I'm unlikely to pick up a hard copy book and thumb through it. Uh it's just it's it's time consuming and you know you you've got to shut out the world when you do that and and an audiobooks are a great way to enjoy books when you're doing something else. You know you you can work on your bike, you can wash the dishes, you can cook a meal, you can uh, hell like I say I do my work listening to books. Um so it was important for me to and and sales have borne that out. Um this is not a runaway bestseller. but but the books that i have sold i uh, it's it's not even close to it i'd say it's probably 7 to 1 copies audio audio to uh, hard copy <laughs> big question is what made you decide not to narrate the book yourself i actually tried it uh it was my intent to narrate it myself i figured i could save a dollar doing that you know i i i'm not a radio guy but i i can speak and uh you know <laughs> this is going to come across I I in no way I'm insulting what you do you say you got a computer and a microphone how the hell hard can it be um well it turns it turns <laughs> it turns out to be very very difficult um I was living in this loft apartment in Minneapolis when I decided to start recording this book on my own so I tried to find a quiet place in my apartment my nasty city loft apartment with my own dog and everything else going around me I end up in my closet Ted surrounded by clothes you have like this is great this sound deadening I've got my my laptop my my you know my computer sitting on a shelf in the closet. I can't get a chair in there. There's not enough room. I'm sitting on an ice chest with this with this microphone I ordered online with some program I don't know how to use and I start narrating this book and and it doesn't take me a couple hours of trying to realize that a I I'm not a professional voiceover guy. I don't know how to work this software. My back and ass are killing me from sitting on this freaking ice chest. and uh, it's 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 not as easy as having a computer and a microphone so i farmed it out to the to the professionals all right so now how and why did you select your narrator daniel mccauley excellent job he did how did you come about selecting him and why sure um i found uh, this is um audible's a great thing so 
you know, if you've got a book that you want to have narrated or whatever, you you basically ask, you, you say how much you want to offer, whether it's a dollar a word or $1,400 for the project or so much an hour or whatever, you say what you want to offer. And within that price range, you get uh, auditions from different narrators and they have different skill sets. Some of them are brand new. Dan was an old radio guy from way back. Um, so you, you get various auditions and hopefully you find somebody whose voice and style kind of matches with what you're thinking for the book. Um, I had I had listened to probably 15, 16 different auditions uh, when Dan read this this particular scene that I had put out there. He read it and just nailed it. I mean, it was spot on. It felt to me that it fit the book. And his voice is really nothing like mine. If you listen to the book, you know that. But he seemed to embody the character and the road, and and, and, and he's very, very listenable. Um, now, what happened? Uh, I I hired him based on that scene. I was like, done, done deal, dude. You're in. Boom. Let's do this. Here, here's my deposit. Let's go. And this this great storied radio guy with a you know the, the, an, an expertise that I can have no hope of matching. He starts sending me these sample chapters for my approval. And, and because he's not reading it exactly the way I would read it, or maybe he doesn't pronounce something or, or, or hit the punchlines the same way I thought that they should be hit, I start sending him back these notes, you know, this little corrections like, oh, that's that's great. I'm going to need you to redo, you know, three minutes in the segment, whatever it was. And I wore him out. I wore his patience out very quickly. Um, they'd taken direction from me for whatever rate it was that I was paying. And um, he was very polite, consummate professional. He was very polite. He got back to me. And, and I, I can't remember his wording. It's been too long now. But essentially it was, let me do my thing. And uh, and, and I got out of his way then. <laughs> and I got to say, he does such a better job with the book than I could ever think to, to do with it. And, and I think he is more than partially responsible uh, for the sales of that audiobook because he, he is so easy to listen to and does such a nice job with it. And, I, and I'm grateful that I hired him and I've apologized to him half a dozen times about busting his chops so hard when, when we first got out of the gate. So there were a couple of points in the book, because uh, I've listened to it a number of times, where his certain inflection on certain words or on certain topics, uh, now were, the, were those at, at your request or were some of these things just him doing his thing some some probably so in this chapter four god love him in this chapter four he goes to this place well i go to this place and he reads it woods smoked meats and this woods smoked meats is a, is a place you know it's this it's this i would say kind of a hole in the wall butcher shop in the middle of nowhere um but this place has like 500 plus awards for its different you know you know Stricken sausages and hams and ribs. I, I mean, award on top of award on top of award. Um, and they they won an award from this German body. And and I mean, the, the name of this place is like 42 letters long. And it's 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 hard German. And I am thankful that I didn't have to read that. That Dan got stuck reading it. And um, and he hit it, brother. He hit it right on. He reads that, and it sounds so good. And, and it's part of a joke that I'm in the middle of telling. And him hitting it so 
absolutely dead on the money. I don't speak German. I think he did. But him hitting it so dead on the money really makes that punchline land. And uh, yeah, again, I, 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 I flat, you know, I, I can't say enough good things about Dan because he he, uh, he saved me from myself there. Now, there was a part in the very beginning of the book when you were discussing with your sister Shannon uh, yeah. about doing this and the description that you laid out for her and the way he read it, I think you know a part I'm talking about, about her heart. Oh, her coal black heart. The way he delivered that. Oh, he did it great. No, I didn't give him any direction on that. He was pretty good at, at, at um, I write in kind of a smart ass way um, and sometimes kind of subtle. And um, and he picked up on most, if not all of that. And and sometimes sometimes I would have a joke that was that was that was super subtle. And, and he would come up to it and build and like plunge into the pool and, and really hit it. But yeah, my, my sister with her coal black heart. Now, did he deliver it that way or was that your request? No, that was him. That was him. Oh, that was perfect. And that's like I say, he read that he read that scene that I had set up for the audition and nailed it. And then uh, he, he really did the best work when I quit trying to tell him what to do when he just book. What did your sister have to say about that part? Oh, she likes the whole thing. She's a, she appreciates that she's in it. And, um, and just like Dan, you know, I give Dan the credit for, for reading the book. I give her the credit for, for being the impetus of the book. You know, she, she, she did a lot of the planning. She bought my airline tickets. She was sort of my support on the road, finding me things that I needed as I went along. And she was the one who, who really made it happen because I, you know, in a moment of doubt, I looked across the desk to her and I was like, I was like, should I do it? She's like, yeah, you could. And, uh, and so, you know, it was, it was that little bit of prodding from my baby sister that's, that sent me down the road and yeah, I, you know, from start to finish, how long did it take to, to create the book or, and, or create the audiobook? Okay. So I came back in the fall of 2014 and I didn't get started on it until that spring. And then I started on it and I set it aside. I was struggling to get it written. I, I like I said, I wasn't sure that there was enough there with my nine-day trip to justify a book. So I took a break and I wrote another short book. Uh, I wrote a book called Everyday Happiness. And uh, having finished Everyday Happiness, uh, I was without subject matter and I went back and revisited the the trip down the Great River Road. And that's when I started researching the places that I went. And then it fell into place because I actually got excited about the places I went. I would get up and write at five o'clock in the morning and, and write till like 6.30. And I would come back to bed and wake up my girlfriend just frothing at the nuts to describe what I had read about that day. Like, oh my God, you're not gonna believe it. And uh, and so eager to get that stuff put down on paper. Um, that that uh, So it, it probably took me once I got, once I got going on the project in earnest, about a year, about a year to get it written. And what you can see is the change in my writing process. The beginning of the book, I was writing in these hour, or hour and a half segments in the morning. And so it's almost like a series of collected essays. And as I get further in the book, I started writing for four or five hours on Saturday afternoons. And you see that the, that the passages in the book start stretching out longer and getting more detailed uh, in the second half, particularly down when I'm in like in uh, Cairo, Illinois, telling the story of Froggy James. But uh, yeah, thanks for asking, Ted. For this particular chapter, tell uh, our listeners what they're about to hear in this chapter and what chapter it is. Sure. This is chapter four. So I think this is my third day on the road because, uh, you know, I, I give a little background and whatnot before I start. And each chapter is, is essentially a day on the road. So this is chapter four. Um, I'm still optimistic. Nothing really bad has happened yet. Um, but nothing exciting has happened yet either. And I'm starting to get kind of excited. I, I know that there's a lot of really cool things coming further down the road and I'm getting closer to it. 
I'm out of my home state of Minnesota. Uh, I think the book begins in uh, in Iowa. And there's there's a couple of really neat things that happen in this chapter. I, I picked it because it's it's one of my favorites. I, I go to this I go to this place called the Fort Diner for lunch, and it's this little diner in Fort Madison, Iowa. And um, I, I I feel like if I'm going to write something, I've got to interact with people. You know, I'm trying to force this interaction with with strangers, and. Uh, I tried to force an interaction with a guy and it didn't work. It kind of backfired on me and, and, I, and, I, and I learned a lesson there. And then further on, uh, I go to the Keokuk Dam in, in Keokuk, Iowa. And the Keokuk Dam is just a marvel uh, of modern engineering. And, uh, and there's a little bit of a ghost story involved there. So Keokuk was amazing. Um, then, uh, then I end up, I blow, you know, I'm on the Great River Road. I blow right through Mark Twain's hometown without ever, without ever, not even a whistle stop. I didn't even, I didn't even stop to pee and grab a soda, just boop, right through uh, Mark Twain's hometown, which reflects my planning. Um, but I end up, I end up the chapter, I end the chapter in this book at a campground, uh, settling in for the night. It's my second night in a row camping. I've been cold and, and part of my preparation, I ordered this stupid, uh, I ordered this towel. This it's like a chamois for your body. It folds up real small, and, and, and I'd already lost my freaking towel. I'm drying myself with with yesterday's t-shirts and whatnot, and so I end up at this campground, and I'm just trying to get myself organized, just trying to live life right. I do every stitch of my laundry. I mean everything, uh, and I, I put on clean clothes. I'm hydrating myself. I'm trying to live right and really, you know, prepare myself for the second half of the trip. And it all goes to pot when I piss myself. So that's a, it's a it's a good story. And and after this, the next day, um, you know, if you get into chapter five, six, seven, then then things really start to happen, both for the bad and the good. So this chapter four is kind of the turning point in the book where things like my innocence is shattered, and and things start to get good. Well, Chris, thank you very much for sharing this chapter with us. And we look forward to, we got another, any other books coming from you? Um, eventually. Yeah. I've got a couple of projects in the work and, and I will keep you, uh, I will keep you uh, updated, Ted. I'm, I'm really excited. You know, for me, writing is cyclical. Um, what happens is I, I, I put something out there and it tends to drain my energy. And then, and then I, I sort of rest on my laurels and kind of take my pats on the back for having written that. And then I start to feel guilty one part guilty, two parts juicy again. And I realized I got to get creating. So I was actually talking to my wife. Uh, I got married this last year. I was talking to my wife the other day. Congratulations. Thank yeah. Thank you. We've had a busy year, but I've, I've got to get back in the workshop and, and crank some stuff out. So I'll let you know. And thank you very much for asking. Uh, any motorcycle adventures coming up? Well, okay. So I, I said to my wife today, we, we rode past a restaurant. We were just out running some errands. And I said, oh, that looks, she's, she's a bicyclist. Okay. And so I've started yeah. taking up biking. You know, it's bicycling. And so uh, we rode, we, we drove past, past this place earlier today. And I said, um, well, that'd be a nice place to bike to this summer. And she goes, yeah, I'd like to get back over to Stillwater. And she starts naming these towns. I'm talking about bicycling. She's talking about motorcycling. So I think I've got to oh. Yeah. And so I'm just looking forward to getting back on the bike this summer with my new wife behind me and, and seeing some more of what America has to offer. Well, Chris, again, thank you very much for joining me on the podcast to talk about Great River Road and in your book, Welcome to Metropolis. Thanks, Ted. Chapter 4 I was a dam builder across the river deep and wide, where steel and water did collide. 
I slipped and fell into the wet concrete below. From Highwaymen by Jimmy Webb Having fallen asleep by the fire and later crawling into my sleeping bag fully clothed, I woke up in a fragile cocoon of warmth, breathing the freezing air of pre-dawn. A layer of frost had settled over the campground while I slept, leaving the windshield on the motorcycle a dusty gray. I lingered for a while in my sleeping bag, enjoying the meager heat I'd managed to build, and then showered in one of the KOA's tidy compact stalls, the water turned up almost as hot as it would go. I'd bought an extra-large camp towel from REI before the trip. It was a Kermit Green people chamois, and folded to fit inside a little mesh bag the size of a chewing tobacco pouch. Unable to find it amidst my tangle of clothes and supplies, I dried myself with the previous day's campfire-scented T-shirt before quickly getting dressed and breaking camp. The temperature was still below freezing when I fired up the cowie and headed out to rejoin the Great River Road. Afraid that scraping the frost might scratch the bike's Lexan windshield, I lowered it instead and rode away from the KOA with my helmet and shoulders buffeted by the crisp morning air. In spite of the cold, the Friday morning sky was clear, and the rising sun shone brightly through the trees sparkling on the river and exciting what color remained in the November landscape. At one point along Illinois 92, a construction crew was already at work and blocking one side of an intersection. Their flagman, a middle-aged black man with square shoulders and a round belly, flashed me a smile and a thumbs up as I rode past. A few miles later, I crossed the Becky Bridge over to the west side of the Mississippi and into Muscatine, Iowa, the pearl-button capital of the world, and briefly the home of Mark Twain, who spent the summer of 1855 as a writer for the Muscatine Journal, a newspaper partially owned by his brother, Orion. About the town, Twain later observed, I remember Muscatine still more pleasantly for its summer sunsets. I have never seen any on either side of the ocean that equaled them. They used the broad, smooth river as a canvas and painted on it every imaginable dream of color. The sunrises are also said to be exceedingly fine. I do not know. The sun was fully up on the pleasant river view as I rode into Muscatine's old downtown along Riverside Park, where a docked riverboat caught my eye. Diminutive compared to the large steamboats I was used to seeing hauling tourists around in St. Paul, the pearl-button paddle wheel is a compact and new side-wheeler. At 61 foot long and 21 foot wide, she was built in 1985, and at the time of her commissioning was the first side-wheel paddleboat commissioned in over a hundred years. White and red, with ornate rails around her two passenger decks, the pearl-button paddlewheel ferries tourists, up to a hundred at a time, on Mississippi River cruises, offering a glimpse back in time with light refreshments along the way. Beer's three dollars, pop two dollars, notes her website. The ramp to the pearl-button paddlewheel was closed and I wandered over to look at the Mississippi Harvest statue, a 28-foot-tall bronze sculpture of a Mississippi clam fisherman paying tribute to the city's history. The thick shells of the local mussels made them perfect for button-making, and in 1905, Muscatine was producing a billion and a half buttons a year, which accounted for over a third of the world's entire supply. Pearl buttons, as they were called, were eventually replaced by plastic ones, which were faster, easier, and cheaper to produce. As I rode out of town on Highway 61, the familiar pilot's wheel pointed me down Oregon Street and on to Stewart Road, which ran past an assortment of neatly kept rural homes, old crooked farmhouses with peeling paint, and galvanized steel buildings with work trucks parked outside until it finally edged back toward the river at Cooliger Slough along the Mark Twain Wildlife Refuge. As I followed County Road X-61 down along bends and dips and over tiny concrete bridges through Port Louisa, 
The temperature hovered around 40, and a cruel, gusting wind rose out of the south, stripping the heat from my body as I rode into it. Along Lake Odessa, a shallow backwater of the Mississippi, I decided to duck into the nearest place I could find to warm up. Spotting a sign for Rocky's Landing, I eagerly pulled off the main road and coasted down the sloping tarmac of 97th Street toward the lakeshore. I was already fantasizing about a warm ceramic mug of coffee in my hand when I saw the sign announcing that Rocky's was closed for the season. Dejected and cold, I got off the Kawasaki and just stood for a minute before rummaging through my saddlebag for a fresh packet of hot hands, the chemical hand warmers that were quickly becoming prized possessions. I tore open a plastic pouch, shook the two new warmers in the air to activate the charcoal inside them, shoved them deep into my gauntlets, and reluctantly pushed on to the small town of Wapello across the Iowa River. Turning left onto Highway 61 in Wapello around 10 o'clock, I stumbled across the Jack and Jill, a squat country grocery store in a steel pole building next to a bank which displayed the commodity corn price out front on its digital sign. Stepping inside the Jack and Jill, I exchanged good mornings with this single cashier as my eyes took in the cracked and peeling linoleum tiles and the tired-looking racks of familiar staples. Whether or not it had always been the Jack and Jill, the store had been there a while, serving hard duty with little maintenance. I found my way toward the back and paid for a cup of self-serve coffee at a counter that also sold fried chicken and soft-serve ice cream. The counter was flanked by a little squadron of wood grain from Ica booths, and I slid into one with a view of the bank and cradled my coffee like a baby chick as I tried to warm up. The girl from the deli counter wandered over and started wiping down the other tables before asking me what I was doing riding a motorcycle on such a cold day. When I told her, she called me crazy and then added, Iowa sucks. I want to move to Wyoming. Matt Damon stared down at us from a nearby promo poster for the Monuments Men, his expression earnest and purposeful above an olive-colored field jacket. And what's the matter with Iowa? I asked. It's too hot in the summer and too cold in the winter, she answered before wishing me well and starting back toward the counter, leaving me to my styrofoam cup of black coffee. I drank it slowly, flipping through a local ad circular. Then I drank another, staring out the window at my bike and wondering... How cold it was in Wyoming. With a couple cups of hot coffee in me and with fresh hot hands in my gauntlets, boots, front pockets, back pockets, and the breast pockets of my jacket, I climbed back on the big cowie and headed out of Wapello to the south, following Highway 61 until I came to County Road H-22 and turned left, headed east back toward the Mississippi and the Great River Road. I had only been gone from the Jack and Jill about fifteen minutes when I spotted a little church beside the road. Other than a dilapidated barn a mile or so back, it looked to be the only man-made structure around. It was just a single story, with whitewashed wood clapboard siding and a black shingle-hip roof. A little gabled porch covered the stairs leading to the entrance, and it was flanked by a white bell tower about thirty feet tall, with gothic openings set into square frames at the top. The church stood alone in the southwest corner of County H-22 and 123rd Avenue, a narrow crushed gravel road. Its sparse lawn, the only green in the brown autumn landscape, was ringed by a spindly black wrought-iron fence, and a small cemetery with several dozen headstones occupied the side yard. A crooked wooden sign out front said, Fairview Community Church. Another sign above the first one read, Established 1885, New Building 1905, New Beginning 1998. The whole scene was lovely and charming and maybe even a little spooky. 
Standing alone out there in the country, the Fairview Community Church reminded me of the country church from Kill Bill, except it isn't really fair to say it was standing alone. In fact, it wasn't the church that had compelled me to stop. Immediately across from the church, on the opposite side of the gravel road, stood a six- or eight-foot-tall statue of an angry black gorilla locked in a perpetual stare with the little white building, its congregants, and all their new beginnings. The gorilla had one arm raised in an angry, defiant fist, the other one low and forward, the hand open and choking. It stood with its feet apart on a broad concrete base, its bared teeth painted a shocking white, its eyes bright yellow discs with small black pupils. The word Fairview had been painted across the gorilla's massive pecs and had been split in half to accommodate the beast's physique so that Fair was painted on his right peck sloping down with a contour of the muscle, and View was painted on his left sloping up. Below that, in all caps across the barreled abs of his belly, was painted the word Zoo. Fairview Zoo. With no further sign or explanation, I stood on a gravel road in southeastern Iowa between Fairview Church and the Fairview Zoo, which apparently was a one-animal outfit featuring a single, lifeless, yet somehow still remarkably animated gorilla. I was torn between alternate visions of Fairview. On one hand, they might be a small town of God-fearing animal lovers earnestly trying to gather the scratch to finish a zoo project, while it had begun with the installation of a gorilla at the future site of the Welcome Center. On the other hand, they might be a God-fearing bunch of regular Iowans with one smart-ass neighbor who will remain forever unwelcome at the spring potluck. With no idea which was the case, I sidled up under the raised arm of the gorilla and took a selfie, deciding that whether he was snarling or smiling might actually be a kind of attitudinal Rorschach test, like the fun optical illusions you sometimes stumble across online. Do you see a beautiful woman or an old crone? Selfie complete, I situated my motorcycle in front of the church for a contrasting shot, the wispy clouds against a crisp blue sky framing the church and adding to its bucolic charm. As it turns out, the gorilla is a roadside marker for the Fairview Zoological Farm, where Duane and Melinda Connolly keep nearly 300 animals, including lemurs, an anteater, and a Watusi steer. The zoo is only open on weekends and is located south of the Fairview Community Church down 123rd Avenue. Still smiling from my encounter with the Fairview Gorilla, I turned back onto County H-22 and rejoined the Great River Road a few miles east at County Road 99. Here, the GRR runs parallel with the Mississippi, rolling through miles and miles of Iowa farmland dotted with barns and pickup trucks. I rode through the sleepy hamlet of Kingston and followed the gentle curves and dips of 99 past more fields and farms and over Flint Creek into the city of Burlington. At the Bluff Harbor Marina, the GRR rejoined the Mississippi and followed Main Street through Burlington, which once served as the first capital of the Wisconsin Territory and then the capital of the Iowa Territory, before rejoining Highway 61. About 90 minutes after my stop in Fairview, I rolled into downtown Fort Madison, Iowa. A replica of the old Army Fort sits on the river in a park just off the GRR, its sturdy wooden buildings and walls gray with age. I was looking it over as I passed, wondering whether or not I should stop when a diner on the opposite side of the road caught my eye. Occupying a tidy spot on the corner, the Fort Diner is a tiny white box with blue trim and an awning declaring it the home of the Wally Burger. A shiny band of stainless steel frames the slanted roof and a couple of newspaper boxes mark the front entrance. I was almost past it by the time I even registered its existence and I had to go around the block to get a second look. 
deciding as I did that I'd stop for lunch if they were open. Stepping inside, I found it not only open, but packed. The few small tables along the window and each of the eight or ten round vinyl stools along the counter were all occupied by people who looked like locals and probably regulars, tradesmen mostly. The whole place was small enough that each time the front door opened, pretty much everyone looked up to see who was coming or going. I felt like an outsider as I took the only open seat, a spot at the counter just inside the front door and directly across from the grill. On my right was a stack of thirty-count egg cartons. Behind me, on the doors of a white refrigerator, was a child's scribbled crayon drawing. The worn, laminate counter was seafoam green, and sweet rolls on saucers covered with plastic wrap were placed at regular intervals there among the sugar dispensers and red plastic ketchup bottles. There were photocopied menus on green and orange paper, but the menu was also on the wall opposite the counter. The white plastic backlit sign offered four rows of items, each with a corresponding price in red plastic letters. The Wally and Jake Steak and Eggs were the most expensive at ten twenty-five. If you were looking to eat cheap, a single egg could be had for a dollar twenty. In between were the Thunderburger, the Thriller, the Mess, the Big Easy, and the Egg Sandwich. There was also a dry erase board with daily specials, including meatloaf, mashed potatoes, and green beans for six fifty. As soon as I was settled, a frenzied waitress slid a plastic tumbler of ice water in front of me and asked if I was ready to order. Fresh from the cold and determined to do a better job of eating like a local, I ordered the special. While I waited, an older woman in a full-length coat stepped inside the door, rubbing her hands together and clomping her feet. "'Just getting warm,' she announced to the room. She walked in place for a minute or so and then slipped out the front door, a rush of cold air accompanying her exit. Across from me, the cook was working to keep pace with the lunch crowd, his movements fluid and graceful. He had thinning silver hair and wore a red T-shirt which stretched tight across his broad shoulders. The waitress called him Jake, as in Jake's Steak and Eggs and Jake and Walt's Fort Diner. I'd missed the Jake and Walt's on the sign out front. You're Jake? I asked. Is this your place? He agreed and said that he was one of the owners. I wanted to ask more, to talk to him about the diner, its history, and how long he'd owned it. But he was busy cooking, and there was just enough curtness to his reply to put me off. Soon my lunch arrived, a generous slab of seasoned meatloaf seared brown at the edges, a scoop of mashed potatoes covered in brown gravy, and a side of green beans with meaty hunks of bacon mixed in. As I ate, a big-eyed girl sitting next to me struck up a conversation. She asked me where I was going, and when I told her I was riding down the Mississippi to New Orleans, she eagerly recounted a trip she'd taken there, taking time to include lots of funny details and stories about people I'd never meet. She followed up by saying she'd lived in Louisville, Kentucky for a while and was hoping to move back. She told me about her boyfriend and shared that since money was tight, Louisville would have to wait, but that she was definitely going back. I was too cold, she said. In perfect punctuation to her point, a customer walked out the front door, making way for a frigid wind that rushed through the gap to wash over us. A moment later, the waitress noticed a forgotten styrofoam container on the counter in front of the customer's vacant stool. She snatched it up and ran outside, calling after them, only to return again a few seconds later with the container still in hand. Two more blasts of cold air. Somebody forgot their lunch. The waitress said and handed the container over to Jake, who sat it behind the counter. My check came, and while I waited for my change, cash is preferred at the Fort Diner, 
I tried once again to strike up a conversation with the silver-haired cook. Having ordered and complimented the special, made a temporary friend with the local girl, and sat through a couple of arrivals and departures, I thought Jake might be more inclined to give me a moment. I was intrigued by some of the naming on the menu. Jake's steak and eggs were there, and so was the egg Stanwich, which I thought was clever. I said as much and asked if Stan was also one of the owners. Jake didn't acknowledge the question, so I asked it again, thinking maybe he'd been distracted or hadn't heard me. This time he excused himself and went outside to get something from the cooler. When the waitress handed me my change, she glanced outside toward the cooler and said, Stan was his brother that died. She looked at me with a mixture of consolation and condemnation and added, Sore subject. I may not have known any better, but it was time for me to go. Leaving Fort Madison, I felt awkward and a little ashamed. I hadn't meant any harm, but that didn't mean I hadn't caused any. I wanted to get back on the open road and put some distance between myself and the fumble exchange. Instead, I was stopped twice to sit on my idling motorcycle and wait as long freight trains lumbered past, oblivious to me, Jake, and the big-eyed girl with the dreams of heading back to Louisville. The Great River Road follows U.S. 61 south out of Fort Madison until turning east and joining the Mississippi River Road just north of Montrose. The transition couldn't be more dramatic. While that part of Highway 61 is a freshly laid four-lane divided highway barreling through a nondescript landscape, the turnoff onto the Mississippi River Road leads immediately through the sleepy river town of Montrose, strolling past houses and parks and stately historical buildings at 20 miles per hour before snuggling right in against the river and disappearing uphill into a picturesque tree-lined lane, its sun-dappled surface narrow and unmarked. After a half-mile or so, county maintenance picks up the road, widening it, painting it with traffic lanes, and raising the speed limit to 50. Still, the essential character of the stretch is not lost, as the road continues to wind and dip along the lazily passing river while trees, wild bushes, and grass creep up on it from both sides. The view was so pleasant, and the gentle curves and undulations of the road so gratifying to ride that I stopped twice to take pictures, once next to a pond south of Montrose, and again on a sweeping uphill S-curve just north of Keokuk that I rode up and then immediately turned and rode back down again just for the pleasure of doing it twice. Riding between Montrose and Keokuk was like riding through a museum diorama of America, at least the Iowa part. There would be different dioramas later, on other sections of the road, telling a different American story. But in this hall, the Hall of the Happy Midwest, the curator had placed crisp American flags on front yard poles to catch the Mississippi River breeze while fathers and sons fished from the banks. In Sandusky, he had placed a quaint Methodist church on a tree-lined slope inside a gentle curve. Its whitewashed wood sides were capped with a steep-pitched roof and a brick chimney, and a permanent sign out front announced, Worship Services, 9 a.m. If you look the church up on Google Street View, you'll spot a home-ground vegetable stand on the corner across the street, its bounty overflowing a small folding table, its proprietor trusting payment to the honor system. In Keokuk, the road makes one last dramatic sweep uphill, narrow and tree-lined once again before cresting a bluff and opening up for an expansive view of the river to the left, with 57-acre Rand Park on the right. The park has a long row of benches facing the river and spaced at regular intervals all along its eastern boundary. Among them, gazing out over the river and across to Illinois, stands a statue honoring Chief Keokuk, for whom the city was named. 
Keokuk is remembered principally for his pragmatic cooperation with the U.S. government, including a role in the ceding of some six million acres of land in Iowa following a bloody territorial dispute. As a part of the settlement, Keokuk and his Sauk tribe were to be given a 400-mile expanse surrounding their village. This land was eventually taken from the Sauk, and Keokuk and his people were relocated to a reservation in Kansas, where he died of dysentery in 1848 at the age of 60. In 1883, his remains were disinterred, moved to Keokuk, and placed at the memorial site in Rand Park. The statue, created in Keokuk's honor by Iowa sculptor Nellie Walker, was added in 1913. Continuing past Rand Park, the Great River Road follows a city street, wide and bordered with sidewalk on each side, into a quiet residential neighborhood where large historic homes sit well back from the curb among mature trees and broad, well-tended lawns. I followed Park Place down to the awkward cul-de-sac where it ends in a yellow concrete lip, tall for a curb, short for a wall, that keeps unwary drivers from toppling down the steep bank and into the river. It was there on a quiet residential street that I got my first look at one of Keokuk's most interesting landmarks, the Keokuk Power Plant in Lock and Dam No. 19. The Keokuk Hydro Plant wasn't on my itinerary, and I had no way of expecting it as I puttered along Park Place admiring the weathered grandeur of the mansion-like homes at its south end. Having reached the end of the road, I stopped to admire the view of the river and found myself immediately thrown into boyish excitement and wonder at the marvel rising up out of the water far below to meet me nearly at eye level. An imposing industrial-age behemoth, spotting the Keokuk power station for the first time was like looking down and noticing the rusting hulk of the Titanic crawling up the Mississippi shoreline, except that the Keokuk power station is over twice as long as the great ship and still in operation, belching out electricity from enormous generators the likes of which mankind had never seen when they were placed in service in the summer of 1913. The Keokuk Energy Center, as it's known today, rises ten stories above the water, and includes one of the world's largest concrete monolith dams at nearly a full mile in length. Providing power as far away as St. Louis, the $25 million engineering marvel once drew tourists from all over the country. One such eager visitor was Frank G. Carpenter, whose first-person account of his tour was published in Raleigh, North Carolina's The Farmer and the Mechanic in November of 1913, just a few months after the opening of the plant. Carpenter's description of the power plant, gushing with amazed wonder, begins, Think of dropping a force equal to 200,000 horses all pulling at once right out of the skies into the center of one of the busiest populations on Earth. That is what has been done at Keokuk Power Plant. Talk of the Palace of Aladdin and the Slaves of the Lamp. The Aladdin of the Mississippi Valley is Hugh L. Cooper, the engineer who conceived and built the Keokuk Dam, and the Slaves of the Lamp are the waters of this great river which for ages and ages will now go on laboring day and night for the nation. Carpenter's astonishment at the awesome power-generating potential of the plant was well-founded. Before the plant opened, electricity had been generated only locally, with the farthest transmission being 11 miles. Cooper and the engineers at Keokuk didn't just double or triple or even quadruple that. Instead, from its first day in operation, the Keokuk facility provided power as far as 140 miles away over twelve times the previous record. It would be as if, years later, having successfully placed a man in orbit, NASA skipped the moon entirely and decided instead to set out straight away for Mars. 
The immense powerhouse at Keokuk, largely unchanged from the day of its grand opening, is over 1,700 feet in length and 132 feet wide with its foundation moored in bedrock 25 feet below the natural river bottom. Referencing the length of the dam and the size of the powerhouse, Carpenter remarked on how hard it was to believe their dimensions. It is only when we climb down the hundreds of steps and tramp our legs, tired and going through the miles of construction, that we realize these things are so. Eager to get a better look at the massive concrete and brick structure, I followed 4th Street down into the old business district and turned left on Main, where just a couple of blocks down, I was able to turn off onto what used to be the entrance to the Iowa side of the Keokuk Municipal Bridge, before it was closed to car traffic in 1985, when its replacement opened immediately to the south. A double-deck swing-arm structure, the Municipal Bridge is still occasionally used by rail traffic, but the swing-arm, which is near the entrance to the bridge on the Keokuk side, now rests in the open position with river traffic having the right-of-way. The upper deck entrance to the bridge remains in place and has been converted to a public observation platform for viewing the powerhouse, lock, and dam. The original toll booth stands at the entrance, the blacktop roadway there now replaced with decorative cobblestones leading up to the bridge deck, where wooden planks have been laid, giving the wide pedestrian walkway a boardwalk feel. It was lunchtime on a colder-than-usual early November Friday, and I had the observation deck to myself as I walked out to the end to gaze across the yawning gap between the observation deck and the open swing arm of the elderly bridge, the skeletal steel frame of the structure dark and spindly against the sky on both sides of the opening. To my left, upriver, was the mighty powerhouse and dam. In a fit of wonderment, I took about two dozen pictures of it with the Canon DSLR that would remain otherwise almost entirely unused for the duration of my trip, its retrieval and stowage being a giant pain in the ass among the tight quarters in the Cowie saddlebags, jammed as they were with bare repellent, hand warmers, and mysteriously disappearing REI camp towels. Later, while searching through old newspaper articles from the time of the dam's construction, I stumbled across a familiar legend, that of a worker entombed in concrete. In the case of the Keokuk Dam, the story is that a worker was discovered missing at roll call but wasn't found until weeks later when his hand was spotted sticking out of one of the dam's concrete sections after the wooden forms were removed. At that point, a rescue effort would have been in vain, and any attempt to recover his remains would have meant significant damage to both the corpse and the structure of the dam, so he was simply left there, a ghastly and unintended addition to the project. This story was published in dozens of local and regional papers, as well as in the Detroit Free Press, the San Francisco Chronicle, and the New York Times over the weekend of December 14th and 15th, 1912. The Moberly Weekly Monitor, which, after providing the same general information as all the other articles, played the incident like a campfire ghost story, speculating that the dead worker may haunt the dam, and at night, when a lone watchman casts his eye over the dam, he may see the ghost playing hide-and-seek among the piers. In spite of the widespread newspaper coverage from December 1912, I couldn't find any follow-up stories or any other mention of the tragedy. Similar stories have been told about unnamed workers entombed in other great engineering works, most notably the Hoover Dam. A few years before the Keokuk story, there was a rumor of a worker trapped and left to die inside the double hull of the Titanic during her rapid construction, and prior to that of a worker similarly entombed in the Leviathan, later named the Great Eastern, a ship six times the size of any previous liner. The Leviathan was in fact so large that she refused to enter the water, 
at her public launch in November of 1857, for which 3,000 spectator tickets had been sold, the steam winches that were to move her into the water were not up to the task. Two further attempts were made over the next three weeks, which also failed, even after the addition of hydraulic rams. It wasn't until January 31st of 1858 that her builders finally managed to get the Leviathan into the water, assisted by an unusually high tide, strong wind, and a new, more powerful set of rams. The launch effort itself cost nearly 200,000 British pounds, nearly a third of the original cost estimate for the entire ship. These unverified stories of entombment have been attributed to the collective fears of a generation rapidly transitioning from an agrarian to an industrial age. Certainly, I felt small against the imposing stone face of the Keokuk facility, and there was something fascinatingly sinister in its hulking form. Reflecting a boldly masculine design aesthetic from a time when engineers flaunted their dominance over the natural world, Carpenter breathlessly proclaiming of the Mississippi River, that rampageous old water bronco has been lassoed by the cowboys of modern progress, and she is now plugging away and doing work like a cart horse. It's no surprise that visitors still find themselves in awe of the gigantic structure. Just outside of Keokuk, I crossed the Des Moines River on US-136 and entered Missouri. The sun was brilliant in a cloudless sky, and even though I was still bundled up in my freshly bought scarf and long underwear, the weather was the best I'd had. I pulled to the side of the road and took a picture with the blue Missouri Welcomes You highway sign, feeling like I was finally beginning to put some distance between myself and the bastard cold that had chased me down the river for three days. It was 62 degrees, the highest the temperature would get that day, and one of the highest I'd see on the entire journey. The Great River Road whisked along a characterless four-lane stretch of Highway 61 until it found a way to reach for the river again just north of Canton. I followed it south across the Wyaconda River on a rusty old single-lane truss bridge and into LaGrange, where I pulled into a vacant, weedy parking lot beside the road to take a shot of the cowie against the backdrop of an abandoned brick building. Long and low and industrial-looking, a number of its gridded window panes had been broken by vandals. A chain-link fence kept out would-be explorers, and after a few failed attempts to capture the upside-down beauty of decay, I fired up the bike and headed south toward Bowling Green, where Shannon had booked me at the Cozy Sea Campground. Between rushed planning and the shaky nature of Great River Road signage, the ball got dropped entirely at the city of Hannibal. Highway 61, for the most part, makes a wide, four-lane, no-nonsense southward plunge through the Missouri countryside, miles west of the meandering foolishness of the Mississippi River. This isn't the best recipe for a scenic byway celebrating the beauty and history of the river, so when it moves briefly eastward through Hannibal, Highway 61 passes the baton to the much better-suited Missouri 79, which winds and darts and cuts through bluffs and otherwise does its best to follow Carpenter's rampageous old water bronco in a scenic and byway-ish way. Taking no notice of the signage, if there was any, I rode boring, economical Highway 61 right through the heart of Hannibal and onward toward Bowling Green, missing the turn for Missouri 79 entirely. Riding the 30 miles between Hannibal and Bowling Green on 61 and believing it still to be the GRR, I silently cataloged my annoyance with the Missouri DOT and the poor job they had done selecting that piece of unremarkable highway to be a part of the Great River Road. Hannibal, by the way, which I sped through with the efficiency of a long-haul trucker on a four-day run, has the distinction of being the boyhood home of Mark Twain and the setting for the adventures of Tom Sawyer and the adventures of Huckleberry Finn, sometimes called the Great American Novel.
facts on which the itinerary Shannon had prepared for me was entirely silent. Instead, I made a beeline toward Bowling Green to sample the offerings of Bankhead Chocolates, a local candy company founded in 1919. A visit to Woods Smoked Meats was also on the docket. Learning more about the man William Faulkner described as the father of American literature and whose fame was intimately tied with life on the Mississippi would just have to wait for my next once-in-a-lifetime solo motorcycle trip down the Great River. In fairness, I do like chocolate. A lot. Shannon knows this. She's seen me go after a caramel pecan turtle like a man with a score to saddle. I also like smoked meats. Now I'd been on the road only three days and had ordered a BLT for lunch twice. Shannon has seen me sprawled out and napping on every Christmas morning for decades, full of eggs and bacon and caramel rolls and assorted chocolates like a tired boxer between rounds just waiting to waddle back into the ring. She has never once heard me utter a word about Mark Twain. I rode into the cozy sea campground just around four o'clock to secure my spot and get Agnes set up while I still had daylight. Clean and sparing, the cozy sea is primarily meant as an RV campground, laid out as it is in neat rows with crushed gravel drives and closely cropped grass between the hookups. The owner-manager met me near the office in a spiffy white golf cart and showed me to a tent camping spot immediately next to a large covered pavilion. There was a bonfire pit rimmed with flat stones and a stack of free wood. The spot was just across from the caretaker's house if I needed anything. Other than a single RV parked at the other end of the campground, the place was entirely deserted. My spot was basically a lawn separated from the road by a broad, gentle ditch. I wasn't worried about bears so much as someone falling asleep on Highway 54, wandering off the shoulder and running me over. It would be like camping in someone's front yard, their large and well-tended front yard, that happened to have a picnic pavilion, a mini-golf course, a row of RV spots, and an office store laundromat. Like that kind of front yard. I quickly set up my tent and headed to town to try and catch the scene at Woods Smoked Meats before they closed for the day. Woods Smoked Meats is a family operation that's been around for over 60 years and has won over 500 state, national, and international awards. If you run by that sentence too quickly, the number 500 doesn't have a proper chance to register. 500. I have a couple of plaques in my office and the bibs from 13 5K races. Bibs aren't an award, mind you. They're a souvenir. They're the participation trophy for a 5K race. And technically, you can get the bib without running the race, so even with the bib, you're kind of on the honor system. I can't imagine earning 500 awards. Even spread over 60 years, that's still an award every month and a half. Only you know they didn't come in like that. They came in little flurries and great deluges, punctuating generations of excellence. Inside the store at Woods, framed awards cover almost every available wall space, and they definitely aren't participation awards. They're for things like the 1997 American Cured Meat Championships Reserve Grand Champion, Smoke Country Ham. 1999 American Cured Meat Championships Reserve Grand Champion, Cooked Summer Sausage. And 2002 American Cured Meat Championships Reserve Grand Champion, Meat Snack Stick. And lest you think this American Cured Meat Championships thing is rigged, there's also a gold medal from the Internationaler Qualitätswettbewerb für Schinken, boneless ham, and another from the same organization for Bratwurst. That's right, the Germans gave Woods a gold medal for Bratwurst. There's a framed cover of Meat and Poultry, the industry's leading magazine, with Ed Woods on the cover in a ball cap and red apron. 
The awards and accolades go on and on. It was after five when I walked through the door of the rustic wood-paneled building into the wood store in Delhi. 1-800-I-LOVE-HAM. Nowhere near enough time to take in all the awards, and barely time to select a few different types of Sweet Betsy from Pike, Jerky and Sausage to sample and carry home for gifts. The woman who helped me was kind and patient, telling me to take my time looking around, but I'm not the guy who makes someone stay late at the end of their shift just so I can gawk. I took a handful of pictures, stared longingly at the fresh meat offerings behind the glass of the old deli counter, knowing I didn't have a good way to prepare them, paid for my souvenirs, and left, hoping I might still have a chance to grab some chocolates from Bankhead. Bankhead Chocolates, like wood-smoked meats, has been around a while. Founded in 1919 by Thomas Jefferson Bankhead, great-grandson of that Thomas Jefferson, Bankhead is currently owned by April Foster, whose family has kept the operation going for the last quarter century. Their current location is in a pink-painted brick building with an old-fashioned white-railed porch out front. Lace curtains hang in the picture windows that frame front doors with oval glass inserts. Stepping inside is like stepping into the home of a Midwestern grandmother. Oak tables and chairs with spindle backs offer patrons a place to sit, and a gift shop with local crafts and cards and the sorts of what nottery that late middle-aged women like to buy fills a portion of the open space in front of Bankhead's long wooden display case. The store was vacant when I walked in, and I was already at the counter looking over a limited selection of chocolates when a teenage girl came out of the back and seemed a little surprised to see me. Apparently, the store had just closed, and she'd been putting away the inventory for the evening and had forgotten to lock the front door. I quickly apologized, but she encouraged me to look around, said an apology of her own for the reduced selection at that time of the day, and introduced herself as Erica. While I picked out a peanut butter cup and a chocolate-covered orange peel, she told me a little bit about the shop and gave me a business card, writing the owner's name on the back in precise, curving script. A few minutes later, standing in the parking lot out front, I tried the peanut butter cup I just bought. It was so smooth and creamy and tasted so authentic compared to the mass-marketed peanut butter cups I'd grown used to over the years. I wondered how something so rich and indulgent had gotten reduced to the grainy, corrugated discs I knew from a hundred vending machines. And in that answer lies the explanation of how boutique chocolatiers like Bankhead are still around, lace curtains and all. Afterward, I rode into quaint downtown Bowling Green, and right across from a county building in War Memorial found a crowded Mexican restaurant, Dos Primos, where I had a combination plate and a bottle of Pacifico while sitting at the bar and enjoying the sounds of people visiting all around me. I'd been on the road for only two days and had only minimal interaction with anyone. Rather than feeling lonely, I was liberated by my solo vacation. I was in charge of when and where to stop, what to eat, and what to listen to on the radio. I'd enjoyed hours alone with my thoughts and the scenery. When I paid my tab and walked outside, the night was dark and cool, and the street was quiet except for the sound of a church bell ringing. Riding out of another small brick-fronted downtown, I felt like a mysterious wanderer in a Saturday afternoon spaghetti western. Back at the cozy sea, I got a fire going in the fire pit and carried a garbage bag of dirty clothes to the laundry room, stopping at the bathroom next door to change into the next day's clothes so I could wash what I'd worn that day. In only jeans and a t-shirt, I piled everything I'd already worn into a single machine and turned to look for the little wall-mounted vending station for detergent and softener. Only there wasn't any vending station. Assuming there always would be, I hadn't brought any detergent, just a Ziploc baggie full of quarters. 
Where you'd expect to find the vending station, there was instead a sign, printed from a computer and laminated. It said, Cozy Sea Laundromat Guidelines. Please do not set on the equipment sorting table. Please do not dye clothing in the washers or wash clothing that has tar, oil, etc. on them. Or wash rugs, heavy items. We're not responsible for unattended clothing. Feel free to sing, to read, take exchange books, magazines. All done. Go shopping, nap, have a drink, hug on. Accompanying each line was a somewhere-in-the-ballpark-appropriate emoji. The line about not dyeing your clothes had an angry gray vampire thing with wings and fangs. Have a drink featured a buzzed-looking smiley inspecting a glass of wine. I was trying to decide if head and shoulders would make an acceptable laundry detergent if used in the correct amount when I spotted a discarded bottle of liquid Tide in the plastic garbage bin by the door. What remained in the bottle was probably the correct amount if it had been head and shoulders. I used it anyway, holding the bottle upside down over the wash tub for long passing seconds before shaking it to release the last stubborn drops of viscous blue liquid still clinging reluctantly to the sides. Feeling proud of my thrift and pluck. Ah, that's the way they used to, Rusty. I padded down the gravel driveway in my flip-flops to settle beside the fire and wait out the wash cycle. While the firelight danced, I sorted out my Highway 61 error on the map and drank a bottle of blue Powerade Zero. I was concerned about becoming dehydrated from my hours on the cycle and the relatively little I was drinking during the day, so I'd bought a couple bottles at a gas station on the way back to the cozy sea. I sipped my way through the first during the wash cycle and then popped a second one and made my way through it while my clothes tumbled in the dryer. When I returned to the laundry room to fold my load of clothes, they needed a couple more minutes, so I busied myself looking through the small selection of community reading materials on the side of the equipment sorting table. Among issues of Our Daily Bread and Every Day with Rachel Ray, there were heaps of nearly identical Harlequin romance novels. The Cowboy's Healing Ways featured a gentle-looking Marlboro man, Dr. Jesse Alvarez Cooper, leaning against a tree and touching the brim of his hat in a Brad Pitt, a river runs through it type of way. Above his head, the publisher had added a banner that said, Larger Print. Apparently, Lady Arviers were Christian, far-sighted, and a little randy, at least the ones looking to take exchange books, magazines. They were also apparently familiar with the benefits of extra virgin olive oil. Laundry folded and repacked, I returned to my campsite and settled in for the night. The big Agnes was shaped like a lopsided pyramid, wide at the head and tapered at the feet. It had a couple of miniature cargo nets just inside the door and a separate rain flap that stretched over the top. It was a confident shade of military green, as if the good people at Big Agnes were looking to say that this is the tent Bear Grills would use if he weren't prepared to make his own from the hide of a feral yak. My sleeping bag was rated for sub-zero temperatures, but I didn't like the claustrophobia of having it zipped all the way up, so I decided to sleep in my clothes again to make up the lost warmth. I climbed in, took off my jacket and shoes, slid them all the way to the bottom and tried to get comfortable on the little inflatable camp pillow I'd bought. It was about the size of a cigar box and required supplement by way of my own folded arm. Settled in, I contemplated the day, feeling satisfied. I was getting used to the road, had seen a couple cool things, and had only the coolest stuff yet ahead. The weather had even begun to warm. Every item of clothing I had was clean, and I'd taken responsible measures to stave off dehydration. Bear Grylls would be proud of that last bit. Knowing that I'd probably have to pee in the middle of the night, 
I'd brought one of the empty wide-mouth Powerade Zero bottles into the tent with me. The temperature would be in the high forties overnight, but I'd had enough of the cold and wasn't looking forward to the prospect of leaving the sleeping bag once I settled. Hours later, I woke up with a full bladder and a vigorous wind shaking the rain flap. After trying unsuccessfully to fall back to sleep for several minutes, I knew it was time to test the urinal properties of the Powerade Zero bottle. Half in, half out of the sleeping bag, I unbuttoned my jeans and got everything into position. Within seconds, I felt the sweet relief of a rapidly emptying bladder. Within a few more, I felt the spreading damp warmth on my thigh and groin. Abort! Abort! Docking maneuver failed! Suddenly and fully awake, I took a moment to ponder what could possibly have gone wrong with something so seemingly simple, decided that the cause of the incident was less important than the consequence, and reached down to assess the damage, the bastard wind the whole while shaking the rain flap and threatening to blow my house down. My pants and underwear were wet, but thankfully my sleeping bag was still dry. I checked my watch to discover I'd somehow made it through to five o'clock. I got up, took a long, leisurely shower, and ran my big-boy pants through the washer with a delicate splash of head and shoulders. Returning to my site to break camp in the first weak moments of daylight, I saw that the wind had blown over my tent, bearing Agnes's big ass to the world. 4,182 miles away, across the cold, gray expanse of the Atlantic, Bear Grylls shuddered. Thank you for joining me and Chris here on the Motorcycle Men Podcast. This has been Chapters with Chris Koch and Chapter 4 of Welcome to Metropolis. All right, so links to Chris's book will be in the show notes and, of course, on the Motorcycle Men website. Motorcycle Men Podcast is supporting David's Dream Believe Cancer Foundation. If you would like to help out and be a part of something that actually makes a difference, go to davidsdreamandbelieve.org to donate. And, of course, the Gold Star Ride Foundation has been helping families of fallen soldiers. If you would like to be a part of a great cause and get some heartfelt miles in, go to goldstarride.org and learn how you can participate in the next Gold Star Ride. Don't forget to go over to the Motorcycle Men YouTube channel and watch some of the many videos we have there, including the Ted Shed and Ride with Ted videos. All right, for the rest of the Motorcycle Men team, thanks for listening. And remember, we say stupid crap so you don't have to. Ride safely, kids. <laughs>